Hello, and welcome back to the New Books in Education. I'm your host, Julie Callio, and today we'll be talking with Erica Halverson and her second co-edited volume, Makeology, Makers as Learners, published by Rutledge. Um, this is edited with Kylie Pepler, Erica Halverson, and Yasmin Kafai. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Erica is a professor of education and curriculum and instruction here at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Erica, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. What's your background, and how did you come to be a professor studying makerspaces? How much time do you have? <laughs> um, so uh, my background, I was trained as a theater artist and uh, had studied to become a professional actor. Um, and along the way, got really excited about and involved with um, it, doing theater and improv and uh, writing with young people and started and ran a program that was teaching creative writing um, and creative performance in schools. And from there, found my way accidentally into education mm-hmm. through a PhD program in the learning sciences. So my degrees in the learning sciences. Um, and I have spent the last 10, 15 years of my academic career studying the intersection of the arts and learning. And so how do people learn in the arts? How do people learn through the arts? What does that mean for the design of learning environments? So how do we design learning spaces that take advantage of what we understand about art making as a set of disciplinary practices and about art making as a set of methods for engaging with other disciplinary practices in education? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in terms of what that means for participants, I've done a lot of work with how art making functions as an identity development platform. Um, and also, uh, specifically how art making influences the kinds of literacy practices that we might care about in schools. Nice. And so how did you find makerspaces? Uh, Where did that first bubble up for you? So, um, actually, so prior to my work with makerspaces, um, I'd focused pretty much exclusively on the performing arts. Mm -hmm. So my earliest work and my dissertation work was in the theater. So it was looking at how, um, adolescents, create original theatrical pieces based on their own life stories and what that meant for their identity development processes. In particular, I was working with youth who identified as queer and how the telling of their stories influenced their sense of who they were as queer adolescents in the world. Um, and also how uh, making plays influenced literacy. When I came to UW, I got involved with um, a group of scholars who were in the early wave of digital media and learning practices. So Jim G, who's now at Arizona State, um, Constance Steinkuhler and Kurt Squire, who are now at UC Irvine, uh, myself, David Schaefer, who's here at UW-Madison, um, and Rich Alverson, who's also here at UW-Madison, who also happens to be my husband. Um, we were all looking at uh, the role of digital media in young people's learning lives from a variety of angles. <clears throat> And so I spent a lot of time looking at digital media production. So how does filmmaking, for example, or radio making like we're doing right now, how do those processes influence identity and influence um, literacy learning and learn literacy practices? And um, through my work as an artist and learning scientist, met Kim Sheridan, who is a co-author of mine and a, and a collaborator of mine. And we were talking um, at a conference, actually, and she said to me, this was in probably 2011, maybe? The summer of 2011, I think. Have you ever heard of the Maker Fairs? And I said, no. And she said, I think that's going to be the next thing in the arts and STEM hmm. and learning. And we should get on it because the two of us have probably the most diverse range of expertise in arts practices and learning. Kim is a visual artist. She's a sculptor and a painter. I'm a performing artist. And both of us have this um, intellectual bent around theories of learning. And so Kim actually was the one who said, um, let's make a thing that way. Let's see if we can't um, get in on this work. And she didn't put it this way, but now I've started thinking about this essentially before it gets eaten by what I would call the STEM monster. So mm-hmm. how do we how do we get in on the maker movement before the STEM people eat it? 
So um, we'll come back to the STEM monster because yeah. that is one of the questions that I have for you. And and so we um, ended up writing and and receiving what I think was the first National Science Foundation funded effort to study the maker movement. Um, so we had some money from the NSF to do first some um, ethnographic case studies of maker spaces around the country and maker fairs around the country. We haven't done nearly enough publishing about the maker fair stuff, um, but we've done some publishing around um, different angles of maker spaces as, as cases of learning environment practices. Um, and then we did a series of design experiments with uh, our partners at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh, um, which has probably the finest museum-based makerspace in the country, in my opinion. So if anybody lives near the Pittsburgh area, I would <laughs> highly recommend checking out Make Shop at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. Good shout um, out. They're fantastic. And so we did a series of studies with them. Um, and through that work started charting the, what I think of as the, the course of intellectual inquiry into making and maker spaces. So, um, we've done some writing on maker spaces as learning environments mm-hmm. and, and what those look like and what that means. We've done some writing on making as a set of activities, um, mm-hmm. that can be, uh, infused into everyday classroom practice that can be standalone activities, but looking not so much at the study of the sociocultural context in which making happens, but really the activities themselves as learning practices um, and some work on, on makers and what the identity of makers is and can be and looks like and, and what making affords and constrains identity wise. And there's been some really fantastic work, um, not by me, but by other Scholars, um, Shirin Vasogi at Northwestern, Marcella Worsley, who's also at Northwestern, and his collaborator, Paula Blickstein at Stanford. Um, Leah Bukley writes a lot about this, about um, identity and making and, and how what framing making as a legitimate set of learning activities uh, affords and constrains in terms of ide- identities of practice. All right. So that was a long that, story. Sorry. No, that was great. Um, and it actually preempts some of my questions. But going back to that uh, article with Kimberly Sheridan, where you sort of laid out, here's mm-hmm. the way to study this um, and particularly bringing it into an academic audience. Um, could you define or I'll read you a quote of a definition from the maker movement um, from that article. And then if you could talk about this definition, how sure. you came to this, um, because I think being able to define the emergent practices is something that uh, I really see in your work. Um, so you're, you write, the maker movement refers broadly to the growing number of people who are engaged in the creative production of artifacts in their daily lives and who find vis- physical and digital forums to share their processes and products with others. Mm-hmm. So can I look at the quote? Do you have it sure. by any chance? Great. Um, so I think there's a few chunks of this definition that are worth pulling out. Mm -hmm. So creative production of artifacts, I think, is a key phrase. Um, Production is really important here, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe it goes without saying, but making is about producing things, Mm -hmm. um, which is really a shout out to uh, the sometimes anti-production movement of schooling, right? Which even though in, in modern education theory and research, we understand that learning isn't just about consuming information. School reforms can tend to lag behind that, and we can still be trapped in this learning as consumption model, right? Mm -hmm. So the notion of production is really important. Um, The notion of artifacts is really important, and I think it's something that for me that distinguishes making from other forms of creative production, which is that making is about having a there there. There has mm-hmm. to be a thing. Um, and that's different than performance, for example, right? I would not consider a play to be an artifact in that way. And I would not consider um, uh, actors to be makers. And that doesn't mean that actors aren't involved in acts of creative production. Um, mm-hmm. But there isn't a thing, an artifact that's being generated. And and the reason that I think that's important is that I we can get trapped in this everything is everything um, cycle in, in any field, but in education in particular, right? We call, we name something and then everyone says, well, isn't that just this? And isn't that also this? And then soon you get into the, the, the world where 
anything you name is representative of everything in in the scope. So mm-hmm. to me, artifact is really important. Um, the last part of the definition, share their processes and products, is also important to me. So one key feature of the maker movement is the sharing um, and that people who embrace making as a way of knowing and learning are very committed to sharing what they know with other people and not just sharing the things they make, although that's really important, right? I created a thing. I want to put it out in the world. I want to get feedback on it, either in the form of people giving me comments Mm -hmm. or in purchasing or at a fair, um, but also sharing processes, right? So sites such as Instructables, um, which is a website that allows people to not only post the artifacts that they create, but the way in which they made it mm-hmm. in the hopes that other people will also make the same thing. And so makers and people who are embracing the maker movement as a way to think about learning and knowing and doing are really invested in um, this sharing. And we talk about physical and digital forums. Um, uh, maybe that even goes without saying as well, but that the maker movement, some people associate the maker movement almost exclusively with technological processes for sharing. So if you're a maker, it means you code on a computer and Mm -hmm. you're a member of some sort of online forum. Mm -hmm. And that's true for some folks, but there are also many people who uh, engage in analog making and engage in analog sharing. So maker fairs, right, are not just robots. Mm -hmm. Maker fairs are craft work and innovations in, um, uh, anything from woodworking to uh, uh, bicycles. Mm-hmm. So the the physical and digital component of that, I think, is interesting and relevant, too. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that really that definition really helps for people who where it, it can feel like it's everything. Well, everybody's right. making things. Right. But then how do you kind of draw the boundaries around it and say, actually, this is something that's really new. Uh, right at this moment or or at least a new combination of things mm-hmm. i don't know that any one <coughs> excuse me any one part of that is new mm-hmm. but it's the the combination at within one set of activities that i think is is what's quote unquote new cuz you'll get lots of people obviously critiquing and saying of course there's nothing new about this at all yeah and i actually think in your introduction introductory chapter you go through this is how it draws on these old ideas but it is that that new moment in time mm-hmm. right now um so let's speak a mo- for a moment about uh the maker movement and then education because you do situate this in terms mm-hmm. of uh learning that's happening outside but mm-hmm. it is learning but then there's a lot of interest from schools um and yet it can see there's a tension there. There's a, almost a paradox bes- between saying this is how we're going to study the learning and the outcomes in this creative interest driven practice and the sort of the ethos of making. So how do you I mean, it's obviously a really interesting place to be with yeah. that tension. Um, how do you wrestle with that? Yeah, that's it's great. I wrestle with it a lot. And the older I get, actually, the less less I care about <laughs> The assessment and outcomes part. Um, and I sort of don't know what to do with that because I understand that schools people dedicate a lot of really important time and effort into figuring out how you measure mm-hmm. um, the the value of a learning experience. So I don't want to minimize that. I think personally I care less about it, but I understand why it's important and valuable. Um, as an artist and as a lifelong arts educator – I have both struggled with and benefited from the uh, minimizing of the role of the arts in kids' mm-hmm. uh, formal learning lives. Mm-hmm. And I say struggled and benefited, right? The struggle seems clear, right, which is we don't value the arts. We don't have structures in place to, to give all kids arts-based experiences. You know, I obviously believe and many others believe that you become a better human from engaging in arts-based practices over time. Um, and we, we as an arts community struggle with this question of assessment and measurement and what does it mean to assess an arts-based experience, right? So there's, there's a, there's a struggle there. Um, and that results in things like there's a lot less money for arts-based learning than there is for, you know, math learning or, um, although I would say science educators and social studies educators have similar gripes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, 
almost all the money and energy and resources has gone into reading and math. Mm-hmm. And that's neither here nor there in terms of like, do I think that's good or bad? That's the reality of where resources have been channeled. Mm-hmm. And so those of us who think about disciplines that are outside reading and mathematics have had to come up with other ways um, to talk about the value of what it is we're offering mm-hmm. um, in formal learning environments. So that's the bad side. The good side is that no one's watching you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what that means is you can think creatively and freely about what is it I want people to get out of this experience and how would I know that they've gotten it out of that, right? Mm-hmm. So authentic assessment is a big um, mm-hmm. buzz phrase, but also real thing in uh, arts-based practices broadly, making specifically where um, having legitimate audiences for the work matters a lot and it matters a lot for the self-efficacy, the agency, the resilience of makers. So it matters for these kind of social psychological outcomes that we might care about. But it also matters for how we measure what people are learning, which Mm -hmm. is the audience can tell you whether or not the thing is valuable rather than some fixed set of outcomes that a teacher says, I know this is good when you're, essay has these five components, mm-hmm. right? Every audience for some artifact or, or thing produced can tell you what, you know, if your game doesn't work, your players will tell you, right? Mm-hmm. If your, you know, automatic dog food feeder for families who are out during the day and need a way to give their dog food is not appealing for whatever reason, then, you know, that's an assessment in and of itself. So there's, there's <clears throat> the, uh, the, this kind of embedded and authentic assessment practices um, is a big piece of how we think about outcomes. Mm-hmm. Schools obviously struggle with that for a lot of reasons, many of which are practical. Although, you know, you see more and more um, schools using, their internal audiences for that purpose, right? So it it is mm-hmm. it is common, I think, in schools that embrace this more maker based approach to learning to have older kids make things for younger kids, or to um, repurpose spaces in the school as gallery spaces, um, or to have student generated um, after school and evening programming that highlights and showcases what young people are, are creating. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's these, these authentic audience driven assessments are totally possible mm-hmm. um, in schools, but it definitely requires acknowledging that some of the ways that we've structured assessment, for example, you kind of have to give up on the idea that everybody's going to learn the same thing at the same time, mm-hmm. which is hard for schools, admittedly, right? I mean, schools are built on the idea that we are giving some age graded set of people the same experience at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and these processes don't lend themselves especially well to that um, structure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely that tension between definitely. the structure of school and definitely. the type of learning, but also a lot of interest. And, and school is structured the way it's, you know, and I'm not a policy person or a historian of education, but School is structured the way it's structured for a lot of good reasons. Mm -hmm. And so that's not to say that, you know, all of those structures need to be thrown out the window. Right. And and we need to live. I think we could live comfortably in some of those tensions. Right. We tend to live in this like, well, either we're using this standardized, structured way of doing things or we're taking a full on project based learning maker based approach. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that I think it's okay. To live in some of those, you know, interstitial spaces. Well, and we'll come back to the STEM to STEAM. Mm. So maybe that's a yeah. place where things are are combining. Um, maybe uh, briefly, if you could tell us a few stories. When you think about someone you've met or a place you've been in, what it felt like to be there for people who haven't talked to makers or been to a maker fair. Sure. Who are the, like, those narratives that you can go back to to ground your, your thinking? So... 
uh, you you prepared me for this by saying mm-hmm. that you were going to ask me to tell a few stories. So I've been kind of running them through in mm-hmm. the back of my mind as we were talking. And um, two, actually, people that stand out to me. Uh, so let me just say that the way I ex- the way I explain to people what a maker fair is for people who haven't mm-hmm. been um, is that they are it, as if science fairs and Renaissance fairs had a baby, okay. right? So. Uh, a science fair, right, is a kind of serious inquiry into the display of new scientific knowledge um, that has representation in it, that has um, ways of having scientists engage with audiences, um, tends to be a little more restrained, although, you know, there are science fairs that 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 are that have these kind of whimsical features to them. A Renaissance fair, right, is much more of an art show, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of embodied practice. So people will wear costumes. They'll act as characters. Um, people put a lot of time and effort into the building of their Renaissance fair persona, mm-hmm. both the people that work there and also the people that attend. Um, there are displays, right? There are jousts and there's food and all of these things are serious in the sense that they are authentic artistic practices, but they're more whimsical, right? Like having a, you know, there, there for a while around the Maker Fair circuit, uh, there was this enormous, and by enormous I mean crane sized, so fifty feet. I'm terrible at this kind of estimation, but fifty feet um, metal fire breathing dragon, right? That that was a sort of display item, right, that would put on a show at the Maker Fair, right, that people made and then had been sort of picked up by the make organization and was mm-hmm. kind of being toured around. So imagine that, right? It's often, the Maker Fairs are often in an indoor and outdoor space. Mm-hmm. Um, so the big ones are typically at either like a, a big museum, the New York Hall of Science, for example, hosts an annual Maker Fair. Um, we have one here in Wisconsin, on the um, Wisconsin State Fairgrounds. So a space that accommodates, you know, both large outdoor experiments and kind of more typical indoor, you know, booth-style structures. So a couple of makers that have stood out to me over the years, so I've been to a lot of maker fairs, um, not as many, some, <laughs> more than most. Uh, one was... Um, at the Mini Maker Fair at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh, uh, I I ran into, and this is something I would love to write about someday, but doesn't have sort of the theoretical value that people in education really want, you know. Uh, these two um, uh, Hasidic Jews, um, younger men in their early thirties, who were also ha- were comedians, um, and they. Were puppet comedians, so they had these puppets, and they did this kind of like YouTube puppet show, and they had built um, a, uh, a, a, a touch sensor electronic mezuzah. A mezuzah is a um, little uh, looks like a box that you put on your door frame. Um, that in Jewish tradition uh, has a prayer scroll in it that that keeps the house safe right and and the tradition is uh you are supposed to put your uh finger and i'm going to get this a little bit wrong so i apologize if there are any <laughs> kind of folks that that engage in this practice who are listening and i haven't described it quite right but you put your two fingers to your lips and then you you touch them as on your way in the door and it's a, a religious practice so they built this mezuzah that that uh if you walk past it without touching it would talk to you and it would say like, "Hey, you gonna kiss me? What are you doing? How are you? What? Come back here, right?" So it was like a little sort of sassy mezuzah. Um, and they, for the Maker Fair, had a sort of very basic door frame built, right? The door frame wasn't the thing, and they had this mezuzah, and so people at the Maker Fair could walk through the door. Oh, and then when you kissed it, it played like the Havana Gila or something, right? So you kiss it, it would go like, and so it was delightful, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing about it that was so interesting to me was that the, the 
the science of it, the circuitry of it, was not super sophisticated, right? They had this Arduino board. They, you know, figured out how to give it a few sounds, a few basic commands. Basically, if touched, play this. If, you know, you sense movement, but there is no touching, do this, right? So for for many people at a Maker Faire, that's not super sophisticated electronics. Um, still impressive mm-hmm. to those of us who don't know how to do that, right? Um, but the number of cultural conversations that were generated by their presence at the Maker Faire was fascinating, yeah. right? That, if, you know, most people at the fair, attending the fair, understood the science, but didn't know the culture. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunities for cultural conversation that were generated by this shared set of pra- science practices was really f- amazing to me and fascinating, right? And that these two men who were not really, quote unquote, part of the maker movement, I mean, they obviously knew enough mm-hmm. to get to the maker fair. They knew enough, right, to to sign up, whatever. But this was like their first foray into this world they weren't regulars they weren't um so it that watching how this artifact was an opportunity for this range of conversations among people who would really never otherwise talk to one another right and Mm -hmm. i give them a lot of credit for entering into a community that you know was not generally open to them Mm-hmm. But then also a lot of credit to the folks at the fair for, you know, saying like, what is this? What? Why is it doing that? What? You know, what? Mm-hmm. What's the thing here that it's supposed to be communicating? So that's one thing that has story that has stuck with me. I think that was probably four years ago or so. Um, so that's that's one. Um, another story like that. The very first Maker Fair I went to, uh, which was. In 2012, so like five years ago, um, I think it was five years ago, uh, I met a young man who uh, had figured out how to model. It was called the $20 bow and arrow. And he had figured out how to model the trajectory of an arrow um, using straight pieces of wood and hinges. So rather than having to curve the wood, which you need special tools for, mm-hmm. is very expensive, um, is difficult to, to create, he had figured out how to create a bow that did the same thing, but with straight wooden hinges. Hmm. Um, and so, and, and his parents said, he was like 16, I think, that he had done this entirely on his own. Um, his dad had sort of over time, not helped him with the project, but helped him with a space for the project. Because he's like, oh, we're going to need a bigger boat. Bows and arrows. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, once he figured out what his kid was doing, he was like, I think we need to. Um, and so here was, and, and he was selling them at the fair for like $20. Right. Because they didn't, I mean, it was literally wood and hinges from Home Depot. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, and so it, had, you know, was costing him you know, he wasn't making out like a bandit, but here again was this idea of like, I figured out a thing. I think it's interesting and delightful for others. I'm selling it because that sort of validates. And I've actually had arguments with colleagues about this, where I think mm, the entrepreneurial the part, the entrepreneurial aspect of it to me is actually not a selling out, but a, a another a sort of authentic Practice and uh, and a means of authentic assessment. It's a way of seeing if your thing has value. Right, right. And I'm not advocating, again, on this like, oh, does that mean you think everything is for sale? No, I don't think everything is for sale. But I do think if you innovate a product and you want to test its value, selling it is one way to do that. And, you know, everyone likes when other people think the thing they made is valuable enough to buy, right? Even if you're not becoming a millionaire doing it Mm -hmm. or the next, you know, whoever. Um, So watching him 
and and engage, talking with him um, was another really transformative experience in my understanding of why people make mm-hmm. and what they make and how m- the act of making is a is a ultimately a communicative act around both the science quote unquote mm-hmm. and the culture right cuz both of those products are both products of science mm-hmm. um and, and products of culture interesting I don't know if those are the kind of stories you were hoping for. Perfect, because that helps ground at least. This is kind of what you have in your mm. head as you're thinking through yep. these ideas. Um, oh, I want to. Can I say one more? Because I'll yeah. give an, I'll give a school example. Because those okay. are both sort of individual, the lone on their own yeah. genius maker, or whatever. Um, a few years ago at the Fab Learn conference, which is mm-hmm. a conference um, that Paolo Blixstein out of Stanford runs every year, that is fantastic. That has researchers, makers, um, teachers all come together to share innovations um, in curriculum, in product, in research. Uh, so a few years ago at the FabLearn conference, um, a teacher, social studies teacher, shared um, this project that she did that I thought was just sort of the, the representation of how maker pedagogy can make its way into a formalized curriculum. So the project was that everyone was to design and prototype a um, monument that would go on the D.C. mall of the first female occupant of the of the monument. Right. So the D.C. mall is all these great American mm-hmm. figures. And actually not totally true because Eleanor Roosevelt is actually represented in the FDR memorial. But point being on her right, own, maybe. Yeah. Point being, you know, all to date, all of those representations are of the great men of American history. And so the the project was decide who the figure is, justify that, and design an artifact that represents mm-hmm. your decisions and prototype it um, so that you understand not just the representational quality, but the physical quality of it as well, right? So why would you choose marble? And if you chose marble... How would you make it so that it wouldn't collapse under its own weight? What would you choose, you know, steel? Why would you do that? You know, who, how and who would you make these representational decisions? Um, and then I believe that they did like a gallery mm-hmm. of these scale models of, you know, the, the kids, um, uh, statues that they, that created. So to me, that's like, if every project in school could be that project, mm-hmm. I would be super happy. <laughs> Very cool. So you've touched on gender, culture. Um, you've touched on like the lone kid in their, you know, parents' garage versus in school. So and I want to turn to the book a little bit now, too. So the first section, the chapters focus on the cultures and identities of makers Um and there's the, some of the authors examine dispositions, digital media citizenship, gender issues, motivation. Uh, when you were bringing the book together, is there an insight that you got from seeing the work that other scholars had done and looking across that helped your understanding or or maybe even can help our understanding of, of those intersections of culture and identity? And yeah. That's, yeah, it's a big question. It is a big mm-hmm. question. Um, you know, I, I think like in any in any inquiry into social science, you know, these how we define culture, how we define mm-hmm. identity, how we define equity, none of these are fixed, and what we foreground and background changes based on our disciplinary training, but also, you know, what we're trying to get out of the experience. I mean, I think one shared commitment mm-hmm. that our our authors have, and I think many scholars in learning sciences and 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 in and around the maker movement. So there are people that I would say don't associate themselves necessarily with the maker movement, but who have some of these values is 
um, in a commitment to the equity and diversity component of identity and culture. And, and I say, I say that because I think there's lots of ways you could frame and, and we have scholars in, in, in the volume who don't necessarily make the identity turn around equity and diversity. But I think everyone is committed to, is inspired by the maker movement because of the possibility that making as a set of disciplinary practices can um, lead to a more equitable teaching and learning system. I don't know. Uh, for, I don't have better mm-hmm. words for it that, you know, when we constrain what counts as good learning to the formalized practices that we've historically cared about, we've not made a lot of headway in making that a more inclusive space for everyone. And I think a lot of us see possibilities for making to trans to translate that into pedagogical practices that offer more opportunities for more people. That was a really bad answer. <laughs> I didn't really do a good job with that question. Um, but I do think the equity and diversity piece is really important in our, in our field. And you see that in a lot of the critique, critiques that are leveraged where <clears throat> um, the make organization and make, make mm-hmm. movement um, does not take a more assertive stance around equity and diversity and representation. Um, and a lot of the critiques of make have been around that have been, if you continue to say making is white teenage boys in their garage, making rockets, that's going to become a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of right pushback against that. Um, not just critical, like, oh, you shouldn't say that, but, and here's what making looks like mm-hmm. in these other ways and in these other situations and in these other environments that can create a more inclusive definition, create a more, uh, a shared representational vision of making that includes, um, a range of cultural histories and identities, a range of, um, gender identifications and participation in making. So mm-hmm. all of our authors, I think, have that set of values. Yeah, I definitely saw it in the um, talking about uh, electronic textiles mm-hmm. and boys sewing and plus coding and the girls coding and these stereotypes that they wrestled with of yep. how it shifted what they thought was kind of gender appropriate, mm-hmm. um, particularly for high schoolers. And that's, you could say, a learning outcome. It's part of the experience for them and um, so I, that was one of the pieces that I took away as being mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, so shifting to the second section, it really looks at tools and materials of makers, mm-hmm. which are important, as you say, that there's this artifact, there's this representation that is made. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's everything as basic as cardboard and as advanced as sewing with thread that conducts and then mm-hmm. connecting it to programming. Um, so maybe we can talk for a moment about materials mm-hmm. and then also bring in a little bit of the constructionism and uh, why that's why the building is really important mm. for mm-hmm. the learning. Yep. So I think, right, father of constructionism, Seymour Papert, mm-hmm. um, his foundational, really transformational idea in education theory was that we learn by physically creating things, that that's that learning is fundamentally tied to embodiment mm-hmm. Um and that embodiment um, can be generated through anything from physically making with cardboard to um, digital embodied representations of mathematical practices and problems. And making seems to be a natural outgrowth of that philosophy. Mm-hmm. And you'll see in most writing about making constructionism is the the sort of theoretical backdrop for mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, myself and uh, my former student and now colleague, Brianne Litz at Utah State, have done a lot of thinking um, and are trying to do some writing around how constructionism as a theory of learning and the new literacies framework for thinking about learning mm-hmm. and literacy intersect at this sort of maker 
place, right? Which, because the new literacies has a similar bent, which is that we learn, quote unquote, literacy by producing literate texts, right? Not, we don't learn to be literate just by reading, right? We learn by making text, Mm -hmm. creating, building ideas, representing ideas in a range of textual forms. Um, And so all of that, right, sits, if that sits at the bottom of what it means to learn, then of course you need tools. Because mm-hmm. how can you make things without tools? Um, and hopefully we tried, and I think I feel quite tool ecumenical, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that not all tools are the same, but that one uses different tools for different kinds of purposes. Um, and that that depending on the goal, depending on how you conceptualize what you're making and for what purpose – you're going to engage different sets of tools, right? Cardboard's not really good for exact prototypes. Mm -hmm. So if what you're trying to do is, you know, have some sense of exact representational scale, you're probably not going to make something out of cardboard. But if what you're trying to do is um, create a physical representation that is maybe large enough to interact with in some meaningful way, then cardboard is a delight. Um, and it has different properties. It's cheap. It's easy. If you break it, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why one might use a cheap, easy, breakable material versus a, you know, more expensive but more scaled, accurate set of tools and materials. Well, I think that perspective on tools is really important because I know in my own teaching where it became, oh, makey, makey, this is really cool. Okay, now let's teach all the kids to use the makey, makey in exactly the same way. Right. And so I think that ethos of how you bring tools in, talking to kids about the, you know, affordances and constraints of each one is an an important perspective that the authors brought. And there again, right, you got to give up this idea that everybody's going to learn the same thing at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is really hard, right? And Really, and this is something I've thought about and wrote about for a while. Um, and I teach, um, technology integration, um, for teachers. And so this is something I talk and think about in, in that world as well. I'm really a just in time technologies person, right? Mm-hmm. I am not a let's teach everybody makey makey and then have everybody do the same project. I'm a like, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Oh, you need, you know, you, you need to edit a video. Well, Let's find a video editing tool and then, you know, not go through the tutorial, but say, well, what do you want to do? Great. I'm sure there's a way to figure that out in the context of the tool, right? So I'm definitely a, a just-in-time person. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means for teaching uh, is that teachers have to be comfortable with risk-taking, which for good reasons, many people often are not, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that you got to be comfortable with the idea that maybe a kid's going to want to use a tool that you don't know how to use. And you have to go like, okay, well, I don't know how to use that. So in addition to using it, we got to figure out how to figure out how to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's scary. It's scary for adults. It's scary for kids, right? Everybody wants to think that their teacher knows everything and knows the answer so that if you don't know, you can go to them and they'll tell you. Well, and some of the tools, whether it's a handsaw or a, you know, drill or some of them are could be dangerous right. for kids. And that's there, the delight. I know there are, yeah, that's the delight about, about technology. Right. <laughs> right. Is <laughs> that, you know, the downside is that it's simulated mm-hmm. and can maybe be expensive. The upside is you can't cut your hand off. Right. Right. I mean, it's a thing that I say to even colleagues who are nervous about technology. Look, you can't, I mean, you can break it, but by throwing it against the wall, mm-hmm. but like software wise, you can't break it. So try it. If it doesn't work, figure out a different way right and and people are really very nervous about that Mm -hmm. um in schools we're especially nervous about that yeah uh so one of the things i do want to talk about is um bringing the arts and crafts and cardboard and sewing Mm -hmm. studying that and bringing it into an academic conversation Mm -hmm. and are there barriers that you felt in terms of making this a legitimate place to study or maybe not maybe has it been like oh, this was really obvious. We got in on it kind of early. So where has that struggle been? Yeah, I think the main struggle 
because most I think people are generally excited about the aesthetic and whimsical component of making. And it's Mm -hmm. part of what draws people to making as opposed to just straight up engineering Mm -hmm. um, is is the whimsy of it. I think the the challenge is what I would (laughs) sometimes I call it the like, I don't know if you've ever watched Portlandia. But they have the put a bird on it sketch, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, oh, you want to be whimsical? Just put a bird on it, right? Oh, it's a skirt with a bird on it. As an artist, and I'm not a visual artist, so this has been a learning curve for me and a struggle mm-hmm. for me as well, that I don't want the aesthetic component to be the bird on it, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it's a functional engineering problem, and I painted it pink, and therefore <laughs> it's art. Right. Because you painted it pink. Um, And so the challenge is really a uh, intellectual one, which is what is the aesthetic component of this and how do we understand that and how do we um, embrace that uh, and not just treat it like a bird on it? Mm -hmm. Um, For me, representation and thinking about representation is the key to that. And it goes back to this social studies teacher project. Mm-hmm. It goes to the, um, the, um, uh, the other two projects I mentioned, which is that aesthetics are representational as well, right? That mm-hmm. when you make a decision about how something should look or be or sound or do, these are all decisions about representation. They're all decisions about how is the choice I'm making helping better communicate the idea that I want to communicate? Um, and that idea could be abstract, right? It doesn't have to be a literal idea. Mm-hmm. But the, the purposefulness and the mindfulness with which people make aesthetic representational decisions is a really important component of making that, again, moves it beyond engineering and can take it out of the put a bird on it syndrome. So for me, that's a really important and, and to, to speak to this STEM monster idea, yeah. right? Where I think we can put like a little shoehorn in that, right? Which is to say representational decisions are not always and forever functional, which mm-hmm. is the engineering side, mm-hmm. right? Every decision is functional. How do we make it efficient? How do we make it cheap? How do we solve the problem? How do we, right? And all of those are good representational decisions. But again, I think what tips it from engineering to making is also how do we better communicate what we're trying to do, accomplish, represent, share through, and I use the word aesthetics, I don't know if that's the right word, through non-engineering based representational decisions. Mm -hmm. And that could include painting in a certain color, right? We paint things red because we want people to stop. Yeah. Um, For example, right? Uh, But could also include design decisions, could include, you know, um, uh, decisions about nodding to in, you know, sewing with conductive thread, nodding to how that works so that when you wear it, people understand how you made what you made. Right. That's an aesthetic decision. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that's that's a very important component of this. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And there's like cultural layers to that and gender layers to that that are really interesting places Mm -hmm. to kind of. There are a lot of cultural aesthetic practices that can be. That can be embodied and imbued through those kinds of representational decisions. And they can also be really hard to see. Yes. If, like you said, and they're hard to teach, right? right? Um, But in in directing makers toward those decisions, that's a big part of teaching it. Mm -hmm. Well, Erica, we've taken up a lot of your time. And thank you so much for the stories and for your thoughts and how you're wrestling with these things. Um, One final question is, what are you working on now? Where do you go from here? Yes, good question. So I'm going in two directions. One is a more makery direction and one is a less makery direction. Um, The more makery direction, I'm about to start a project with the North Central Technical College in Wausau, Wisconsin. Um, We just got a grant from the National Science Foundation. Um, They have uh, a built a makerspace out of a horse trailer. 
and they are now um, uh, in, in, imbuing it with what's the word? They're they're installing installing um, all of the equipment and designing a series of activities that they are thinking about in terms of short term, medium term, and long term activities um, that we are then going to um, partner with. Uh, schools and community organizations in the rural communities around Wausau to train local area teens, local area teens to staff the trailer so that when it, when the trailer lives in a community, um, it is staffed by young people Mm -hmm. and teachers who have learned to be maker educators, um, in the space. And we're going to study. I'm going to study. I'm the sort of research team and they're the implementation team. What happens, um, both for the young people who are trained to be maker educators, we have a kind of a unique opportunity to follow a group of 30 to 40 young people over two years as we do this. Um, and also what happens for communities? So how do communities benefit, um, from not only having this physical thing in their community, but from having their own community members be the mentors and leaders of that space because the sort of localness of it is really important to us. So that's a project that I'm about to start. Um, on the non-maker side, I'm actually doing a lot of returning to my performing arts roots. Um, I miss theater. I miss making theater. I miss making theater with, with young kids, about young kids, um, with older kids. So, um, I've started a, an organization here in Madison where I live called Soccer, which is a creative arts residency program in elementary schools where we teach writing and uh, performance. <clears throat> and then we uh, we engage in during school time. And then uh, as a, an adult company, we create performance pieces that we share with the schools based on entirely on the kids' writing with the public um, and trying to figure out all the different ways we can innovate on that um, in the Madison community. So those are the two big things I'm working on. Sounds like interesting projects, and we'll look forward to hearing more about those. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure. Really enjoyed it. And thank you, listeners, for being with us today as we talk to Erica Halverson, co-editor on Makeology about Makers and Learners, published by Rootledge.